You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, December 7th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, the California Report uncovers more details about Devin Nunes' resignation from his congressional seat, which is due to be filled with a special election in the spring. Plus, Bob Wachter of UC San Francisco answers your questions about COVID boosters and the Omicron variant. After a roundup of regional news and weather, Paul Emery talks with water specialist Steve Baker, and Mark Cuniberti reaches a broadcasting milestone on Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Leslie McClurg in San Francisco. Republican Congressman Devin Nunes has announced he's leaving Congress at the end of the year before he finishes his current term. KQED Central Valley reporter Alex Hall explains why. Nunes is taking a new job as CEO of Trump Media and Technology Group, a company that's set to launch a new social media platform next year called Truth Social. In a press release out Monday, Nunes said the time had come to reopen the Internet and allow for the free flow of ideas and expression without censorship. In turn, Trump called Nunes a leader and a fighter, saying the congressman understands, quote, we must stop the liberal media and big tech from destroying the freedoms that make America great. He has been testing the waters, so to speak, in this area for a while. Lisa Bryant is professor of political science at Fresno State University. She says Nunes laid the groundwork for this kind of role by filing numerous lawsuits against news organizations or like when he mailed a pamphlet to his constituents criticizing the Fresno Bee. All of this has been to, you know, sow the seeds of distrust in media. And in that way, you can they can launch a new media outlet that says, hey, you can trust our reporting. You can trust our social media. We won't censor you. We're not the bad guys, right? Politicians are strategic. Brian says it makes sense that Nunes would consider leaving now. Although he's popular in his district, in recent elections, he's faced serious contenders, and his margin of victory has been getting smaller. Plus, the most recent redistricting maps would make Nunes's district more Democratic-leaning. If you take that into account with the fact that his district as a whole has been getting less secure and that there's a possible threat because of redistricting, it has to be a factor that's in the back of his mind. Because Nunes is leaving before the end of his term, voters will have to elect a replacement in a special election that's likely to take place in the spring. Once he's officially out, candidates who might have never had a chance to defeat him will have just a few months to make their case to voters. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. As predicted, the Omicron variant is showing up in more and more states. So we wanted to know if there's any reason to wait a little bit to get a booster shot until we know more. That's an easy question. The answer is no. That's Dr. Bob Wachter. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. He recommends getting your booster as soon as possible. The reasons are a few. First of all, At this point, uh, Delta is 99.99% of the virus that you're likely to encounter. And the evidence is quite clear that the the effectiveness of your first two shots does begin to wear off, starts about month five, and, and then accelerates. And so the biggest risk to you in the next few months, without question, is going to be Uh, being infected with Delta. 
And for someone who's, let's say, seven or eight months out uh, from their first couple of shots, I consider them somewhere between immune and not immune. They're, they're, they're sort of in this middle zone with a single uh, shot of the old vaccine. You can f- put yourself back in a place where you're not only as immune as you were after your first two shots, you're actually in better shape. I think there's a decent chance that that being in better shape is also going to be very valuable against uh, against Omicron, that, that you know, it, it clearly has some ability to evade the immune system, but you want to be as immune as possible if it were to hit here. And I think it's likely to do that. Is there any hope still that we could be a three and done vaccine situation? Or do you foresee that we will be needing some kind of a booster fairly regularly going forward? I think the likeliest scenario is that we will need some boosters over time as the virus continues to evolve and as as the uh, immunity that you get from vaccination wanes. It's logical to think that, wow, you know, I got my two shots in March and I already need a booster. Is that am I going to need one every six months? I think that's pretty unlikely. And the reason for that is, as you've probably heard, the first two shots were very tightly spaced. And that was just to get the clinical trials done and get the vaccines out as quickly as possible. And there is real value to the immune system to giving it some delay and opportunity to mature. And, you know, with all the best intents, and and, and I think it's reasonable to have done what we did, but we didn't really give it that chance with these two shots three or four weeks apart. So this third shot is not only a third shot, but it also is a, a shot after a reasonable delay. And that should lead to a level of immunity in terms of its depth and breadth and, and, and probably its length that's better than we got from those first two shots. But it may turn out to be that, yes, you need boosters every now and then, but rather than the same booster, you need one that's reformulated against. My hope is not just Omicron, but over time we get smarter about this and come up with vaccines and boosters that anticipate potential variants and cover all of them, even potentially before they emerge. Continuing to look forward then. So, you know, I think this summer, most of us felt a nice exhale around June and then whiplash when Delta hit later in the summer. And then we had another exhale this fall as cases dropped. And now we're feeling another whiplash. So is the next sort of super variant or variant of concern going to kind of continue to lurk? Should we just get used to this whiplash? Nobody knows. I mean, I, I, I think there are very few scientists that predicted that Delta would be quite as bad as it was in terms of its level of infectiousness. One of the top virologists in the world said to me, I, I think the odds of a new pandemic, a different, wholly different infection are higher than the chances there'll be a variant that is better at its job than Delta. So I think we've all proven uh, that we need to be humble, that we really don't know that giving this virus, you know, billions of opportunities to uh, to replicate uh, creates opportunities for new mutations. Uh, this virus is smarter than we are, and it, it's figuring out new and better ways to do its job. So I think we have to be humble and ready for anything that nature throws our way. There's anything that I've gotten much better at saying is, I don't know. So on yes, that note, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Bob Walker. He's the professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. 
more at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at schmidtfutures.com. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, December 7th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Leslie McClurg in San Francisco. Thanks for listening. In regional news, developers hoping for approval to build a 150-space RV park across McCourtney Road from the Nevada County Fairgrounds will convene a public meeting on the site of the proposed project Wednesday afternoon at 2.30. Plans for the Grass Valley RV Park Resort were considered by the City of Grass Valley Planning Commission at its meeting last month, but a vote was continued to December 21st. The RV park would consist of spaces for 135 recreational vehicles, in addition to 15 so-called glamping sites for short-term camping. The site is at 11425 McCourtney Road, roughly at the intersection of McCourtney and Old Auburn Road. The 20-acre property is vacant and has been used in recent years as a staging area for PG&E vehicles and sometimes as fairgrounds parking. Tomorrow's meeting on the site is expected to provide an overview of the project and an opportunity for the public to ask questions and express concerns. We'll get to the weather report in a moment, but the short version is that storms are on the way and the Nevada County Office of Emergency Services is again offering free sand and sandbags for pickup at four locations. Bring a friend, a shovel, and gloves to the pickup locations at the Nevada County Warehouse at Highway 49 and East Broad Street, the North San Juan Community Hall, Higgins Fire Department on Combe Road, and the Penn Valley Fire Protection District. For more information, call the Office of Emergency Services at 530-265-1515. Back to the weather for our region. Foothill highs on Wednesday around 50 degrees and lows around 40, with showers possible Wednesday evening into Thursday. Mountain snow developing late Wednesday into Thursday with periods of moderate to heavy snow over the Sierra. The National Weather Service has issued a winter weather advisory for mountain elevations above 5,000 feet from Wednesday afternoon to Thursday afternoon. Chain controls, travel delays, and reduced visibility are possible. Sunny Friday and Saturday with more significant rain on the way Sunday, along with colder temperatures and more snow in the high country. Tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, mainly clear with a low of 47 degrees. Wednesday, increasing clouds with showers beginning in the afternoon, a high of 53 and a low of 42. In Truckee tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 27. Wednesday in Truckee, cloudy with rain and snow showers developing in the evening with a 24% chance of precipitation, a high of 44 and a low of 24. In Sacramento, a few passing clouds tonight with a low of 45. Wednesday in Sacramento, cloudy with a high of 55 and a low of 47. In his latest water talk with KVMR's Paul Emery, hydrologist Steve Baker examines the flexibility of the infrastructure that moves water around our massive, complicated state. 
Well, it's time for Water News with Steve Baker. And Steve, um, let's take a look today at, at a statewide perspective of our water situation uh, for this year. Uh, what does it look like from your viewpoint? Well, you know, let me, we probably discussed this a little before, but I'm going to repeat it again. What, what's a year? for us when we're talking about water it's it's uh, the water year is different than the physical year uh, when we're talking about this type of thing a water year we're talking about uh, a year that begins october 1st and then it ends the next fall the following year on september 30th so that's what we're talking about right now the california department of water resources is looking at the big picture okay they're initiating a 100 million dollar funding program that's designed to restore some of the very damaged water infrastructure in the central valley the damage is pretty significant. Uh, California Aqueduct, the San Luis Canal, Delta Mendota Canal, and the Friant uh, Kern Canal. Uh, these, if if you're taking Highway Five, you've probably seen the exits, or you've actually seen these these inf- this infrastructure. It carries a lot of water. Well, guess what has happened? Groundwater uh, pumping has caused subsidence. In other words, not the aquifer, but the clays uh, between the aquifers have. Have been have been losing their water, and when that happens, the clay grains flatten out, and you have subsidence, so the ground drops, and that has caused some pretty serious problems. Portions of this gravity drain canal system—it's supposed to operate by gravity. It's not—it's uh, not gravity drained anymore. There are these depressions in it, so the flows aren't happening, and that's very uh, difficult when you're trying to convey a lot of water to a lot of different places across. Uh, California. So uh, cumulatively, I mean, let's look at it. These canals deliver water to over 29 million people. And also almost 3 million acres of farmland is supported by this same water and 130,000 acres of wetlands. So we really hang our hat on. We need this this water. Uh, With this project, in other words, we're spending $100 million, right? That will restore 50% of the canal's capacity within the next 10 years. 50% is good within the next 10 years, which is also good, but but, uh, I would hope that we could get back up to, you know, what we need to do. And the reason for that is we have a lot of very wet seasons that we're experiencing these days. Uh, It's off and on, of course. We're in drought, serious drought. Then we get these crazy weather patterns like the one we had last month uh, in October. And we need an infrastructure that's flexible enough to allow us to move that water to where it's needed. So uh, these are very important projects right now. Big picture, state of California. Well, this seems to be uh, certainly good news for Southern California and their water districts uh, and, and the farmers located south of the Delta. But maybe it's not such a good thing for the Delta and parts of Northern California. Are we going in the right direction here? Well, you know, it's a good thing. You uh, good, you brought up a good thing uh, where you're sort of alluding to the historic issues that have been happening around uh, moving water from the Delta southbound. And that means, uh, what about the Delta? What about, uh, you know, we're talking about the the, the twinnel, tunnels, twin tunnels, and then the, back down to the singular, just one tunnel. Uh, protection of salmon. There's so many other things. The Delta communities get hit on this. It's a double-edged sword dealing with this particular thing. Uh, in one sense... We need the Delta to to remain whole, okay? It needs to stay healthy, and it needs to be vibrant. And at the same time, we need to have some reasonableness because we know that, I mean, we we can create a lot of damage to watersheds, uh, but also droughts uh, have a way of making things pretty bad. And we're getting into more extreme droughts. So we need to find that 
happy medium where where we're really being protective of the delta, and at the same time we're we're providing waters uh, not wasting not in a wasteful way but waters where we need it. The California State Water Project made an announcement that really, in my view, supports the protection of the Delta. The California Department of Water Resources announced last week that the magnitude of the current drought and also the uncertainty for how much rain we will receive this coming winter results in this. Zero allocations. Nothing. Not not a darn thing. That's, I mean, that so rarely happens. Uh, uh, usually at this time they provide some sort of allocation uh, for everybody, but they're not doing it this year. Southern, Southern California Metropolitan Water District that relies on 20% of the water that that they receive com- coming from the Delta, uh, they recognize, you know, they're hoping for the best, but they recognize a state that we're, you know, the conditions that we're in. So they are preparing for a pretty dismal water year. So people don't have high expectations. Right now, 100%. Of the state of California is in moderate drought. So, you know, we're, we need to all be careful. Now, the other side of the sword is this. We, we need to have our logistical plans together and up and running. And that means conveyance, conveyance to move those, those uh, events, those rain events that produce a lot of water, like back in October, and move that water very quickly to areas that we can recharge and store that water, recharge into the ground, refill the the existing reservoirs, that that sort of thing. So the infrastructure factor is critical for California so that we can adapt to these these crazy times. It sort of goes along with uh, we need to work with what we do have and we need to stay within our means. How do you do that? Sometimes I'm just not sure. But it sounds like some traditional wisdom that uh, many of us grew up with, and I tend to agree with that. Well, lots of information there, Steve. Well, okay, thanks. Thanks for coming in. And we'll talk to you in two weeks, and we'll see. Maybe we'll have a lot of rain between now and then. Ah, that's in the outlook. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy on KVMR, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. In today's Money Matters, Mark Cuniberti celebrates a broadcasting milestone and gives us a math lesson on the reality of what rallies and crashes can do to your stock portfolio. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cuniberti. Before we begin today, be aware that this is a Money Matters newscast number 1000. I'd like to thank all my long-term supporters and new listeners alike for your support over the years. Without you, I wouldn't have been able to do it for so long. I hope you enjoy today's newscast number 1000. Thanks for listening. Most investors and advisors alike don't understand or perhaps ever thought about the math of losses and how market crashes and rallies affect both profits and gains. For example, if ABC Company stock is at 100 bucks a share and there are a million shares out, the market value known as the market cap is $100 million. That's $100 a share times a million shares is $100 million. If the stock drops, say, 10% to 90 a share, the market cap of the company is now $90 million. Extrapolating similar math to an investor portfolio and applying it to how it affects profits or gains 
shows just how rallies and crashes do things to a portfolio that the investor or advisor may not realize. If we use a fictional account worth $8,000, suppose we grow the account to $10,000. That means we now have $2,000 in profit. Now imagine the market drops by 10% and takes the stock down with it by the same amount. Now the account is valued at $9,000. That profit of $2,000 is cut in half. Simply put, a 10% correction in the stock price wiped out 50% of the profit. What this illustrates is that one's profit is wiped out first in market crashes. Although an investor might look at a 10% market correction and on the surface may be thinking it's only 10%, he may fail to realize until he looks at his statement and does the math that this somewhat minor correction took a bigger chunk of his profit than he first thought. A larger correction of 20% could wipe out all of his profit. Not a pleasant thought, but it is a necessary one. By doing a bit of simple math and knowing your portfolio's net deposits, which are what you put in, and its net withdrawals, what came out in fees, commissions, or personal distributions, and then having an accurate figure on what you have gained, you can be better informed on what a market rally or crash is doing to your account. Investors who don't perform this simple trick and don't keep a running balance may not have a handle on what the overall market or specific stock price changes are doing to what he has gained or lost in the portfolio. They may look at a month-to-month -month statement or even an annual statement, but few might track the total losses or gains over a long period of time. Sometimes brokerage statements will say this, and sometimes they won't. An investor should always remember what may look like a minor market correction or minimal stock price retreat may actually be making huge dents in the profitability of the account. Profits are the first to go in a crash and bear the entire downward movement of a price correction. Profits disappear by a multiple of a market decline, percentage-wise, yet may only increase a proportional amount on the way up. This is, in my opinion, why minimizing losses is tantamount before looking to gains. It's why stock declines can do far more damage than first thought because profits always disappear first in corrections. For this reason, some sort of loss prevention strategy, in my opinion, should always be considered. It is said markets always come back, but prolonged and severe market crashes have, in the past, occasionally taken years or even decades to get back to even. Admittedly, most market routes are temporary temporary blips in an ever-increasing market. But who's to say the next crash won't take down the market significantly and then keep it down for years or even decades? Because no one knows whether this type of wealth obliterating market crash will occur, when it may occur, and how far it will go. Do not consider some type of exit strategy as playing with fire and subsequently your life savings. Most professional traders and money managers use some sort of loss minimizing strategies for their own portfolios and for the portfolios of their clients. If you or your advisor have not considering following what the pros do as it pertains to some sort of exit strategy to protect against a severe wipeout of your investments, the question becomes, why not? That does it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are my opinions only and may not necessarily represent those of this station, its staff, management, or underwriters, or any bank or investment advisory firm or advisor. This newscast is not meant as investment advice. Consult a qualified financial professional before making any important investment decisions. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our voice of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening.
That's our newscast. Coming up next on KVMR at 6.30, it's an all-new, locally produced edition of Educationally Speaking. Hosts Scott W. Lay and Kimberly Ewing talk with a cavalcade of students from Ready Springs, Deer Creek, and Seven Hills Schools about maker spaces, including 3D printing, robotics, and refurbishing bikes for the homeless. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Sierra Moon, family-owned in Old Town Auburn. Customers can work closely with a jewelry designer to help create a -a one-of-a-kind piece. Also specializing in jewelry repair and bridal designs, sierramoongoldsmiths.com. And Automotive City, offering complete automotive service for foreign or domestic vehicles. Also smog testing. Napa Auto Care Center and AAA Facility, Monday through Thursday, 7 to 4.30. Automotive City, grassvalley.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. To catch up with stories you may have missed and find expanded versions of many of our interviews, go to our website, kvmr.org. And you can re-listen to the KVMR News and Steve Baker's Morning News updates wherever you get your podcasts. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Have a wonderful evening.